it's good to see you all here tonight. So we are commanded by God in the Bible to go out and make disciples of all nations. We're commanded to to speak the truth to others. We're commanded to love other people, with which necessitates us giving them the gospel that can save their soul from hell. That is something that we are commanded as Christians to do. But if you started to do that to different people around you, you will start to notice that people are going to start to ask you some questions, and people are going to start objecting to certain things that you say. And so, to be able to deal with some of those questions and to be able to deal with some of those objections, last week we started our first part in a two-part series of street-level biblical apologetics. Apologetics has to do with defending the faith. And we are primarily concentrated on what the Bible says, as it is the thing that has the power to really change people. And we said it was street-level apologetics because these are things that you find on the street. This is not something that's just discussed in some ivory tower. This is some, these are, are objections and questions that I have heard many, many times. So last week we did three, and this week we're going to do five more. But before we jump into those, we need to remind ourselves of something that we talked about last week and that we need to continue to talk about every single week, which is to remind ourselves to keep the gospel central. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said, For I delivered to you as of... First importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins and was buried according to the scripture and was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. The most important thing that we can give to someone is the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news that though we are sinners, though we have violated God's law and deserve death, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth, lived a perfect life, died to pay for the sins of his people, rose from the dead, and offers us eternal salvation if we turn to him, if we trust in him as our Savior and Lord. So as we dive into these objections and questions, remember that that message of the gospel is what we need to always go back to. Many people will lead you off on on different bunny trails, but we need to always take those bunny trails back to what the Bible says is the power of God unto salvation, which is the gospel. So let's open in the word of prayer, and we will dive into street-level biblical apologetics, part two. Lord God, we do thank you so much that you have answers And that you have given us your answers in your word. And when people have objections, when people have questions, we can point them to your word. And we don't just get normal answers. We get answers that have power. Answers that are able to to break down false ideas. Answers that are able to convert people's souls. Answers that are able to direct people back towards you. I ask that as we dive into these These answers, God, I ask that you give us clarity, that you would give us focus, and that we would walk out of this room better equipped to defend the faith. In your son's name we pray, amen. So last week we hit 
three objections and questions. And like I said, we're going to hit five more today, but we're going to go through them lickety split fast. The first one is Christianity is sexist, meaning Christianity is bad for women. Christianity is something that demeans women. Christianity is something that is harmful to women. That objection can come up in your interactions with people. And it is an objection that is totally without any kind of foundation. Because if you look back to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, we see that both male and female, both man and woman, are both made in the image and the likeness of God. Because of that, both male and female are both made with dignity and value and worth. So women are not second-class citizens, but according to the Bible, they are equal in their worth before God. Not only that, but if you go to Galatians chapter 3, it talks about the the union that all believers have with Jesus Christ, that we have been baptized, been immersed spiritually into Jesus Christ. And it says in Galatians chapter 3, that for us who have been immersed into Jesus Christ, it says that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There is equality in Christianity between the slave and the free, between people who are Jew or Greek, meaning there's equality between ethnicities, and there is equality between the genders, between male and female. Every single believer in Jesus Christ shares equally in the benefits of salvation, shares equally in our connection with the Holy Spirit, shares equally in the fact that we have assurance that if we trust in Christ, we will go to heaven, we will receive reward, and we will be transformed. So not only are men and women shown to be equal in the Bible at creation, but believers are shown to equally share salvation. Now, there are different roles that we see in Scripture, and people can get very upset about those roles. If you look in Ephesians chapter 5, you see that a husband's main role is to lovingly and sacrificially lead his wife as Christ leads the church. And a woman is to respectfully submit to her husband as the church submits to Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that the woman is less than the man. It just means they have different roles. If you look in the Gospels, you see that Jesus voluntarily submitted himself to God the Father. And that didn't make Jesus Christ less in value or worth than God the Father. He was just put in a different role than God. We see the fact that Children are to obey their parents, are to submit to their parents. But children are not of less value than their parents. They're just in a different role. We see in Scripture that believers are to submit to the governing authorities, submit to the government, but we're not 
less than the government in our value or worth. So having different roles does not mean that one person in a different role is less than the other. God has just marked things out to be a certain way. And one of the things that he has done from creation onward is to put the man in a leadership role. That's something we see in creation. It's something we see in marriage in Ephesians 5. It's also something we see in the church in in 1 Timothy chapter 2, where it talks about a woman is not to teach or have authority over a man inside the church context. But again, this is not something that is demeaning to women. It just shows that there are different roles. Also, we should not... The Bible does not in any way teach that you can demean or mistreat women because in Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine it says that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. It does not say you're to love your male neighbor as yourself and you can treat the women like dirt. It says neighbor in general, male and female, we are to equally show love to. And if you look throughout the history of the world, you will see that the societies, the the countries, the cultures that are most affected by Christianity are the societies that are most loving and most respectful towards women. Moving on to number two, another objection that can come up is that the Bible is full of errors. There's contradictions in the Bible. There's mistakes. There's mess-ups. That's one that probably all of us have heard at different points in time. Well, to address that, I want you to turn over in your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 3, a very familiar passage in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 3 verses 16 and 17 says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture is breathed out by God. Meaning the words that we're reading here from our Bibles is not something that man just creatively put down on paper. These are things that God himself, the almighty creator of heaven and earth, has spoken. And the almighty creator doesn't stutter. He doesn't mess up in his speech. He does not make mistakes. Which means that when we look at our Bible, we can have confidence that everything in here is true, that everything in here is perfect, that there are no errors, there are no contradictions. We see Jesus talking about the importance of the Scripture as well as the the truthfulness of Scripture and our need to rely on it and follow it in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus had great confidence in the scripture. 
So much confidence that he said, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. An iota in the Hebrew language was, was the smallest letter. And a, and a dot would be the smallest part of the smallest letter. And so Jesus is saying that until everything is accomplished, until heaven and earth pass away, the smallest part of the smallest letter of the smallest word in the scripture will not be abolished, will not be destroyed, will not be made void. Which means, according to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who rose from the dead, we can trust this book. Now, when somebody comes to me on the street and says that the Bible is full of errors, my first response back to them pretty much every time is, can you tell me where? Now, that is a powerful question because 95% of the time, they have no idea. Someone just told them at some point that there was some problem with the Bible and there's errors and contradictions. And so 95% of the time, they have no idea on any errors that they've ever heard about in the Bible. They just think that somebody said that there were. And in the rare instance, in that 5% of the time where they they have some objection to the Scripture, that they they think they have a contradiction, that they think they've, they've found an error The good news is that according to Jesus, since this book is reliable, you can find some answer to those supposed errors or contradictions. A lot of the times all it takes is you sitting down with your Bible and just studying the passage and studying the other passage and going, oh, they actually do work together. That's okay. Or maybe looking up the answer to a question. A lot of times you might not have the answer to some of their objections and you should just say, you know, I don't know the answer to that. Let me, let me look that up for you. We can talk about that again. People appreciate your honesty. None of us are going to have all the answers right there on the tip of our tongue. But the good news is that because of what Jesus Christ says, we can have confidence that there are answers out there to so many of the, the different uh, supposed errors or contradictions that people say are in the Bible. Now, moving on to number three. One of the objections that gets brought up, or it can get brought up as a question, is that all religions bring us to heaven. All religions bring us to heaven. I remember a few years back being on a, on a plane and talking to an Indian gentleman next to me who was a committed Hindu. And we saw you talking about spiritual things, and as we started to interact more and more, I he would constantly come back to the, the sentence, that's your truth. And then he would say, this is my truth. And he would say, your truth and my truth can both be true. And we kind of went around circles quite, frequent, you know, quite, quite often because I would say, but wait, if, if I say there's one God and three persons, and a Muslim says there's only one God, and you say there's many gods, and an atheist says there's no gods, we can't all be right. And he would say, yes, you can, you, you can be right. They can all be correct. 
Now, that Eastern nonsense has made its way to the West, and postmodernism has infected our universities. And so often when you talk to younger people, they will think that there are many ways that lead to heaven, and that if you just jump on one of those trains, you're going to all end up in the same place. Now, not only is that logically absurd, but Jesus said it wasn't true. If you would please turn to John 14, verse 6. In John 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now that's pretty clear, is it not? Jesus says there's only one way. The only way to get to God the Father. The only way to have a relationship with the Creator. The only way for you to be reconciled with the King of Kings is through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. We see this truth being continually proclaimed, not just by Jesus, but by Jesus' disciples. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Peter and the other apostles are are being questioned by, by their Jewish religious leaders. And Peter stands up and says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He says, Jesus is the only way of salvation. No other name. He's it. The only way to to God the Father, the only way to heaven is through a relationship with Jesus Christ. So when people bring up the the craziness of all ways leading to God, these are good verses to go to. It's good to quote Jesus and then say, you know, this guy rose from the dead. He's probably a good person to listen to, isn't he? This guy did more amazing miracles than anyone else in the history of the world. And this guy claimed to be God. This is someone we should trust. Moving on to number four. A question that can be thrown out often is if Christianity is so good, Why is the church full of hypocrites? If Christianity is so good, why is the church full of hypocrites? Well, first, we need to understand what the word hypocrite means. A hypocrite is someone who's pretending to be something that they're not. It's like an actor on a stage. Someone who puts on a mask and then takes it off and they're completely Difference. Someone who's a phony, a, a fraud. Well, if you look at Christianity, one of the things that Christians are very open about is that we are not perfect people. It's not good people who go to heaven. It's people who are broken over their sin and humbly trust in Jesus, who recognize that they are not good people. And so... When it comes to the church, the church is full of a lot of people who are still tainted by sin. Believers who still struggle with sin. 
We see that in, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount when he talks about the prayer that he would that he was teaching his disciples. And in that prayer that they were to continually pray, he instructs them to say, and forgive us our debts. And if this is a prayer that's to be continually prayed, it shows that we still need to ask God for forgiveness because we're still struggling with sin. So a true believer is not one who says that they are perfect. Which means that when you see someone in the church who is struggling with sin, they're not a hypocrite. They're not pretending to be something they're not. They recognize and admit that they still struggle with sin. And so many of the people in the church that people assume are hypocrites are not. Now, there are people who are hypocrites in the church. There are people who pretend to be believers and are not believers. And the Bible talks about them in the Sermon on the Mount. If you turn over to chapter 7 of Matthew, Jesus says in chapter 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There are some people who think they are believers, who go and are involved at the church, who are hypocrites who are not truly saved. We saw that this morning when we, when we talked about Judas. Judas, who was a part of the Twelve, part of the elite, they were kind of the, the Navy Seals of, of Christians, part of the, that group that heard all of that teaching from Jesus Christ himself and saw all the miracles and saw Jesus' perfect life, and yet he walked away. He was a hypocrite. He pretended to be something that he was not. And it is true that in churches there are many hypocrites. That occurs in churches all across the globe. I was one of those hypocrites for, for many years. And by God's grace, he saved me from that. But I have many friends who have not been saved from that yet, who grew up in the church and were baptized in the church and became members of the church and and went to, to Sunday school and went to Wednesday night and Sunday and, and they walked away. They were shown to be hypocrites. So sometimes when people say that there are hypocrites in the church, we can, we can, we can say, no, there, there, there are people who are sinners and they're not pretending to be perfect. And so they're not hypocrites. True believers struggle with sin. And then we can also sometimes we can nod our head and say, you're right, there are hypocrites in the church. There are fakes. But having hypocrites in the church does not mean that Christianity is not true. In fact, it helps confirm Christianity is true because the Bible says that there will be hypocrites in the church. If there weren't any hypocrites in the church, then Christianity would not be true. So when somebody has that, that issue with Christianity, we can point to those truths that we see very clearly in the Word of God. Now, fifth and final one we're going to go through today 
is if God is so good, why is there evil in the world? If God is so good, why is there evil in the world? Now, this is a massive question. And we're going to go through some things very quickly. This is something that could take a five, six, seven sermons. This is something that many books have been written on. But we're going to go through some of the most clear arguments that we see in Scripture. One of the first things that I will tell someone, if they tell me that there is, how can there be a God? How can there be a good God if there is evil in this world? One of my first responses is, your very question automatically assumes there's a God. Because without a God, there is no evil. Because without a God, there is no standard for evil. It's just our opinion. I remember talking to a gal when we were doing evangelism out near, out near the college in, in Ohio, and I talked to a student there who was getting her bachelor's degree in social, just, social justice. She was a liberal lesbian Marxist. We had a very cordial conversation, and we started talking about the issue of slavery. And I asked her, why was slavery wrong? And she started talking about how it was cruel and it was mean to people and it's bad to take away people's, people's freedoms. And, and I asked her, why is it bad to be cruel to someone? Why is it bad to take away their freedom? Why is it bad to be mean to people? Why is it bad to cause people suffering? And she kind of went around the circle and the circle, and we talked about it for about 20 minutes, and I asked the same question probably five or six times until finally we got to the end of it, and she said, you know, I don't know why it's wrong. And the reason she doesn't know why it is wrong is because if you reject God... There's no standard to determine whether something is evil or not. It's just opinion. It's just one person saying, I like this, and somebody else saying, I like that. But if Hitler over here says, I like to kill the Jews, what right do we have to say killing Jews is wrong? We're human. He's a human. Why is my opinion higher than his opinion? There's no way to determine if something is evil unless you have God. And we see all the way back in Genesis chapter 1 that we do have a creator God. We have a God who designed things. We have a God who is in control of things, who reigns on high as king. And since he's the designer, since he's the one who made everything, he's the creator, he gets to define what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong. We have a standard to look to. So asking this question, saying, how can there be a God if there's, if there's evil in this world? The very question itself points to the fact that there has to be a God if there is evil in this world. Another way to answer that question, somebody says, if there's if God is so good, why, why is there evil in this world? Is to look at the, the fall in Genesis chapter 3. 
to look at the fall and see that there's evil in this world because Adam and Eve sinned. God gave them a command, and they broke that command. And because they broke that command, Genesis 3 says that the whole world got messed up. There was conflict and and sin and death began to infect all of creation because of mankind's sin. So that is why there is evil in this world. Another way to address that question is to look at Romans 9, which we'll do very briefly. We looked at it some last week. But if you turn over to Romans 9, we see the Apostle Paul dealing with some people who have some objections to God being sovereign over all. And he says in Romans chapter 9, verse 18, So then he has mercy, talking about God, so then God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. God saves some, he doesn't save some others. He has mercy on some and transforms some, and yet he hardens other people. And our first response to that is to say that is not fair. And Paul's ready for it. He's ready for that objection, and he deals with it right away. He says in verse 19, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? How can God find fault in us if he's the one who has mercy, and he's the one doing the hardening? And he answers, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Paul's response here is... You're not the creator. You're the clay. And the potter has the right to do with us whatever he wants. And he wants to use some individuals to show his wrath, to make known his justice, to show his glory by, 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 by putting people to... By, by causing people to experience his wrath and justice, then he is right to do so. And if he wants to show his glory by giving mercy to some others, to show his loving kindness, well, then he has the right to do so. He is the creator, and he has the right to make his glory seen throughout the universe in whatever way he wants. It's part of the message of of Job that that Dan was going through on Wednesday nights. A lot of bad stuff happened to Job. A lot of terrible evil happened to Job. Some of his animals were were destroyed. His kids were, were killed. His body was just wrecked with disease. And he called out to God. And Job still kept his integrity by never cursing God, but he did question God, and he had some problems with what God was doing. And he asked, why, why, why is this happening? 
And you get to the end of the book and God answers. But he doesn't answer the question the way Job wanted him to answer the question. But he does answer. He says, I am God and you are not. Be silent and trust me. You get to the end of Job and God shows forth his power. And he talks about his, his uh, amazing ability to create and sustain the universe. He talks about his infinite wisdom and knowledge. And at the end, Job says, I put my hand over my mouth and repent in dust and ashes. In other words, Job says, I'm going to shut up now. Because he recognized that God was God and he was not. And though he didn't understand why all the evil was happening to him, he knew that this God who was perfect and powerful and wise and good was a God he could trust even if he didn't have all the answers to why there was evil in his life. So when somebody brings up the question, the objection to how can there be a good God if there is evil in this world, one of the places that we need to turn them to is Romans 9 and the entire book of Job to show them that there is a God and he gets to do what he wants to do. And he has a right to show forth his glory in whatever way he wants. And the only thing that we deserve here on earth is death. And so every good thing that we get here on earth, according to James, every good and perfect gift comes down from where? Above. Every good thing that we get. And so the question should really be, not why, there, why is there evil in this world. The question should be, why is there any good in this world? Why has God given anything good to sinful, messed up people like us? And the answer is because we have a God who is full of loving kindness. We have a God who is full of mercy and grace. We have a God who is willing in his love, in his mercy, in his grace, in his kindness, to send his one and only son to earth and to die so that we might live. And that is a God who is worth worshiping. That is a God who is worth believing. And that is the God that we follow. Lord God, we thank you for who you are we thank you that your word has answers, that your word is a defense of who you are and what you have done. I ask, Lord God, that we would dive into your word every single week, that we would spend time in it, knowing that it will bolster our confidence in you. It will help us deal not only with questions that other people bring up, but the questions that come to our own hearts. I ask God that because of our love for other people and our desire for them to know the truth, that we would be willing to study your word and to find answers. And God, I ask that because of our love for you, that we would be willing to go to your word and see that, that it is perfect, 
that it is complete and it gives us everything that we need for life and godliness. In your son's name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.